So throughout history, there have been many leaders that have come and they've went. And some of them had some pretty interesting titles or nicknames, things that, uh, names that they were given based on what they did or who they were or a position that they held. So I'm going to share with you some of the weirdest and perhaps the silliest examples that I could find throughout history. The first up is Lulak the Foolish. Yeah, that's really how he went down to history. He was the King of Scots in 1057. And as you can imagine, uh, his reign was pretty weak. Uh, he didn't live very long. And to say it nicely, he was forcibly removed from leadership um, about a year into his reign. So Lulak the Foolish, he's, he's got an interesting title. The next up is Piero the Unfortunate. This is uh, a guy who was the maestro of Florence in the late 1400s. And uh, his dad was Lorenzo the Magnificent. So you can imagine that he had a lot to live up to. Uh, Piero did a bad job as a leader and so bad, in fact, that the people of Florence decided to loot their family castle and exile him from the city. So that's why he got the name Unfortunate. Uh, Robert the Little Beagle. He was an English statesman who unfortunately uh, was a little shorter and had a hunchback. And so King James I, who uh, had him at his side a lot, called him My Little Beagle. And that's how this poor guy went down in history. Not for any of his works or the great things he might have accomplished for the kingdom, but because he was short and had a hunchback, he got called the Beagle. Number four, Claudius the Stutterer. I think it's pretty obvious <laughs> why he has his name. But he, however, just, I mean, he stuttered, but however, he also reportedly had a limp. Uh, he was also right after the reign of Jesus in the first century, by the way, uh, Roman emperor. He was reported to have a limp. Uh, he had slight deafness, and when, reportedly, when he'd get really mad, he slobbered a lot. Um, so that's Claudius the stutterer. Elthred the poorly advised. <laughs> the un- he also went by the unfortunate. The, he was a... Uh, king off and on in the 11th century in England. Ironically, Elthered uh, in Old English literally translates to well-advised. So the people made fun of him in the history books by using a, his name for a pun, the well-advised, the, unad, the badly advised king. Uh, so pretty unfortunate there. The next one I think is actually kind of interesting is Harold the Bluetooth. So Harold was famous for having this dead tooth, this black or blue tooth, uh, and his, he also was the first king of Norway and Denmark. Actually, he wasn't the first king, excuse me. That was someone else. But he did bring Norway and Denmark together during his reign. And so the modern inventor of the technology called Bluetooth, which pairs two different devices together, said, oh, I know of this guy named Harold the Bluetooth who did this for Norway and Denmark, so I'm going to name my technology after him. So that's where the name Bluetooth comes from. And the symbol for Bluetooth is actually the combination of his initials in Nordic runes. Yeah, kind of interesting. So the next guy up is Bermudo the Gouty. <laughs> and he was known for his gout. Not much more to explain besides that. At, at the end of his life, it was so bad he couldn't even ride a horse. His own horse. Harold the Lousy. Um, he became the first king of Norway. This is the first king of Norway in 872. And legend claims that as a young man, he vowed that he would not cut his hair until he became king. So after 10 years of waiting, his hair was pretty long. And 
he had some hygiene problems, which led to a bad case of lice. And I learned something this week that louse is the plural of lice. So he was lousy because he had lice. Uh, I think that might have something to do with lousy in our, you know, the normal vernacular, just kind of being not that great. Here's another interesting one. Number nine is Elizabeth II, Admiral in the Great Navy of the state of Nebraska. So you might not know, but Nebraska has the history of handing out these silly titles. So Elizabeth II shares Admiral in the Great Navy of the state of Nebraska with Bill Murray and Ann Landers. (laughs) Kind of interesting. And then the last one, perhaps one of my favorites, is Prince Philip, Lord of Her Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council. So... That's not all. I'm going to read you the full list of all of Prince Philip's titles. His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Morineth, Baron Greenwich, Royal Knight of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Extra Knight of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Member of the Order of Merit, Grand Master and First and Principal Knight, Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. Knight of the Order of Australia, additional member of the Order of New Zealand, extra companion of the Queen's Service Order, Royal Chief of the Order of Logahu, extraordinary companion of the Order of Canada, extraordinary commander of the Order of Military Merit, Canadian Forces Decoration, Lord of Her Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, Privy Councillor of the Queen's Privy Council of Canada, personal aide-de-camp of Her Majesty, Lord High Admirable, Admiral of the United Kingdom. (laughs) Can you imagine writing all that on your resume? (laughs) While most of these titles that we've looked at this morning are are silly or don't mean much, titles can be extremely important. And titles carry with them the meaning of authority and action and position. So, for example, if we say principal as a title... Right, Stephanie, if we say principal, you would think in your mind, what does a principal do? Well, they administrate. They hire and fire people. They have student discipline responsibilities. They may be in charge of doing some policy stuff or making school-wide decisions and announcements. Not every principal does all those things. Some of them fail at their jobs. Some of them do a really good job. But when you think of principal, you think of it, of certain expectations or a president or a pastor. These titles come with meaning. You guys get the point. And the title that we hear all the time, but maybe we don't think about or know really what it means is Christ or Messiah. We say Jesus Christ all the time, and hopefully not in the expletive way, but at church, (laughs) we say Jesus Christ all the time, Jesus the Messiah. And I would wager that some Christians have never heard what Christ or Messiah really means. And I would wager that also some Christians think that Christ is Jesus' last name. But those, that is not the case. And so obviously it's important for us to understand what does Christ mean? What does Messiah actually mean? Because our entire faith, Christian, is named after whatever this word means. So today we're going to be looking and going on an investigative journey about what the Bible says about Messiah, about Christ. And it's no accident that we're talking about this during the Advent season because... In order to understand Jesus all the way, you need to understand what it means to be a Messiah, what it means to be Christ. So let's start with vocabulary. That's a good place to start. 
There are two words in Hebrew that are important to the discussion. The first is mashak. There's the Hebrew at the top, mashak, and it just means to smear or anoint. So this is the verb of Messiah. And then the noun is something that has been smeared or anointed is mashiach, right? And then the transliteration of that is Messiah in English. And that just means something that has been anointed, something that has been smeared upon. And then the translation of these words, the translation of Mashiach into Greek is Christos, right? Christos, which is where we get the word in English Christ, which means the exact same thing as the word Messiah or Mashiach. So here, when we say Jesus Christ, when when we say that, we're actually saying that Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. Now, the question is, why is this anointing important enough to become a title? And where does this come from in the first place? Well, it goes all the way back to the history in the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at who and what has been anointed in the past to get a fuller, more broad understanding of what it means to be the Christ, to be anointed. So I'm going to walk through you. I'm going to walk, help you guys walk through the Old Testament. I'm not going to walk through you. I'm going to help you guys walk through the Old Testament to see how God has used anointing. And this will help us. If you want to, you can follow along, but we're, we have a lot to look through it. But our first passage is going to be in Leviticus chapter 8. I'm going to keep this moving here, so we don't have that much time. I have a lot of, a lot of things to say. So this is the first, one of the first Um, times anointing is mentioned. Leviticus chapter 8. And this is one of the first groups that we see mentioned, which are priests. So Leviticus 8 kind of says this in a few different places. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering. Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle. So literally, he's taking oil and he's spreading it on top of things. He's sprinkling it on the stuff, right? This is the physical act of anointing, the mashak, which is the smearing or covering. So he takes the anointing oil and he anoints the tabernacle and all that was in it. So he touches everything in it with the oil and he consecrates them. And then he sprinkles some of it on the altar seven times, which is the symbol of perfection. And then he anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the basin and his stand to consecrate them. So he's He's just covering everything in this oil. And then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So he just took this jar and he just poured it right on top of him. And it runs down his, his long hair and his very Jewish long beard and probably all over his one set of robes, right? And then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was, of the sac- of the, which was on the altar from the sacrifice and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. The Bible likes to be very clear about what's going on. So there's this physical anointing that we see, which is a symbol of the spiritual reality that is going on in the background. The physical anointing shows that God is choosing specific people in a specific place, in the case of this passage, the tabernacle, for a special purpose. And God is commanding Moses to consecrate these things, which means to make them holy, and not just 
the priests that are going to be serving in the tabernacle, but the tabernacle itself and all the utensils. And God is anointing Aaron so that he can serve as this consecrated, holy, made, right with God person in the tabernacle. And this allows Aaron and his sons to carry out the essential job of priest, which is to bridge the gap between God and man, which is to help bring about the sacrificial system. And without the priest, there would be no old covenant. So, and it wasn't just the first priest, mind you, that were anointed. Leviticus 21 states that every high priest must also be anointed for their position. So this is something that happened for thousands of years throughout Jewish history. So it takes a special mark of holiness to fulfill the role of priest. That's one group that was anointed in the Old Testament. There's another group that was anointed, and that was kings. Look at 1 Samuel 16 with me. This is the anointing of David. So the Lord said to Samuel, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Then the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So God is saying, I want you to physically anoint the person that I am telling you to do. Right? God is choosing this individual. So to kind of summarize here, he runs into Jesse, and Jesse's like, here are all my sons. And one of them doesn't show up, and God didn't say, hey, this is one of them. So he's like, do you have any others? David comes, and he anoints him. And so Samuel takes this horn and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So once again, we see the correlation here between the physical act of anointing with the spiritual reality that it represents. David had physically had oil physically poured on top of him, but that was the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality was the Spirit coming on him, right? So the Spirit was anointing him. The Spirit was coming upon him. And once again, this is God saying that he's choosing specific individuals for specific roles. The first king of Israel, Saul, was also anointed. And many kings after David were also anointed. Some of them took the throne by force. Not all the kings of Israel and Judah were anointed, but they should have been, if they were following God. So, that's two categories. Priests and kings are anointed in the Old Testament. The last example we have is from 1 Kings 19. And these are the prophets. So the Lord said to Elijah, this is the prophet Elijah, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive there you shall know it. Hazel king, you shall now Jehu as king, and you should also now anoint Elisha as a prophet in your place. So he departed from there, and when he found Elisha, he was plowing in the field, and then he passed over to him, and he covered him with his mantle. So he took his cloak, his, his covering, and he took it off of himself, and he covered like he... The physical representation, the anointing, was not with oil this time, but with his cloak. And he places it on Elisha as a symbol of God choosing Elisha to be a prophet. And we know later in Second Kings that Elisha receives a double portion of the spirit 
And he goes on to do amazing things and preach the word of God to the people. So, important to note that there is no mention of oil, but there is still an anointing taking place. And that there's a specific job that comes with the anointing, right? Anointing means a specific job. In this case, it was a prophet. So what we've seen from these examples, let's just kind of recap. People in the Old Testament that received anointings fell into three categories. Priests, prophets, and kings. And God also anointed objects that were consecrated to him. All of these were called for specific purposes and special jobs. And then this is where it gets really interesting because these are the first words in the New Testament. Look at Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Anointed, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the first thing that Matthew mentions about Jesus is his anointing. Now throughout the Old Testament... There are over 400 verses that talk about and relate to this anointed one. That God, this person that God is calling to be the Messiah. Of course, there are many Messiahs. There are many people who have been anointed by God. But then there's this one specific Messiah. Like the ultimate Messiah. And he is going to fulfill the role of prophet, priest, and king. He's going to accomplish all of what God has in store And Matthew is claiming that Jesus is this Messiah that God talked about in the Old Testament. So how was Jesus anointed? Well, much like Elijah, Jesus was not anointed with physical oil, but rather he was anointed with something else. He, in this case, was directly anointed with the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. Acts 10.38 says this, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So God sent his spirit onto Jesus at his baptism, specifically choosing him to fulfill all of God's plans. And that's what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus. We see all of these roles being fulfilled. First of all, he was a prophet. For sure he was a prophet. He traveled around from town to town, speaking the words of God and sharing the good news. That was a large part of Jesus' ministry. He also was the ultimate priest. He is the ultimate priest. Hebrews 4 tells us that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So, in the Old Testament, the priest was between God and man. In this case, Jesus serves as our high priest. He's this mediator between the Father and us. And... As sure as the sun rises, Jesus is also the king, the chosen one of God. Revelation 17 tells us they will make war on the lamb, which is Jesus. And the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So here this leads us to another idea as well. 
if we are chosen, if we are called, if we are faithful, are we also anointed? So, if Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, he's been given all authority and power and dominion over all of the nations. Is there anointing for us? Do we have a calling? Are we chosen? Do we have a specific role? And indeed, we do. 1 John 20 and verse 27 1 John 2, 20 and 27 tells us, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. As for you, the anointing which you received in him abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but at his anointing, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So it's important to note that the anointing that John is talking about here is the Holy Spirit. In the end, that is what all anointing in Scripture actually is, is God pouring out his Spirit onto people so that they can serve him and do the things that he's calling them to do. So as we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like Christ received the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are called to our own specific anointing. We have our own specific ministry and role to fulfill because God has chosen us for that purpose. And our anointing brings us, as we see here in 1 John, the knowledge of truth from God. It brings us wisdom. And our anointing is also to live a life of love and joy and peace. And the broad list of what we are to do goes on from there. But then there are also specific things that we are called to do. We're given specific gifts from the Holy Spirit. And it's our job to fulfill our anointing, our gift, our choosingness from God in that specific way. So let's wrap things up here. And I want to make sure that we walk away with two really solid, concrete ideas from all of this. Number one, Messiah means anointed, and anointed means chosen. So I hope from now on, when you hear the term Messiah or Christ, it carries with it a deeper, more significant meaning than it did before. I also hope you realize what it means to be a Christian in a new way, because you're named after the anointed. You're named after the Messiah. And I hope you realize that he is the chosen one from God. And I think this knowledge will come in handy as you tell people about Jesus, you can tell him how he fulfills his anointing as the Messiah by being the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. The man chosen by God to lead his church in the world. Number two, anointing comes with responsibility. No one in Scripture, you cannot find anyone in Scripture who has been anointed and didn't, was not given a specific job or position, right? Anointing always comes with a reason behind it. This means that since we are anointed by the Spirit, we have a responsibility to fulfill. We all have a job. Like I said, broadly, our jobs are to share the good news, to abide with Jesus, and to live a holy life. And specifically, we have gifts that we're obligated to use for God's kingdom. Now, make sure not to throw away the amazing honor of being anointed, being chosen. Don't waste that. When I think about God placing in my life 
his powerful spirit. It really makes me feel humbled and honored. Seriously, how amazing is it for us to be in the same group? We're, we're lumped together with these great people in the Old Testament, like David and like Aaron and like Elijah. These men who were anointed and chosen by God were also chosen by God. And let us not forget that it is Jesus, the anointed one, that made it possible for all of us to be here. So let's celebrate the fact that we are gifted with God's spirit. And because of Jesus, who was born 2,000 years ago, we can live as God's chosen people. That because of Jesus, we are all serving as members of God's royal priesthood. Let's pray. God, I thank you for giving us specific jobs and roles to fulfill. I thank you for sending your Messiah, your chosen one, into the world to save this world, to save us, to give us salvation. I just pray that as we're approaching Christmas, you let this salvation, this anointing, become ever more present in our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.